The Guardian. On the 31st of December 2019, the World Health Organization was notified of cases of pneumonia of an unknown cause. One week after, Chinese authorities identified a new type of coronavirus. Now, less than a year later, vaccines have been developed against COVID-19, with some already approved and being used in vaccination programs. It's an incredible feat of science, also driven by generous funding, eager trial volunteers, hard-pressed administrators and, no doubt, exhausted clinicians. But this news hasn't always been met with the palpable excitement and relief of researchers, politicians and those who've been shielding for months on end. Many have felt nervous, suspicious and hesitant about the prospect of getting vaccinated against COVID-19. For them, the rapid and global development of vaccines has raised questions about long-term safety, efficacy, and even the motivations of governments and health organizations. People in these sort of marginalized populations, in this case people of color, have legitimate reasons for worrying about what's really in a vaccine. And you see in the United States now, the legacy of this is that the percentage of, of African Americans who are willing to get the vaccination is, is relatively low as compared to other ethnic groups and certainly as compared to white people. Then, of course, there are the so-called anti-vaxxers, those who are vehemently opposed to vaccines, citing health concerns, old, debunked studies, and often conspiracy theories. Before 5G, there was around the idea that uh, COVID was a leaked or escaped bioweapon. Now, that originally we were able to trace one of the first reports on that to um, a site with links to fringe Russian outfits. Over two episodes, we're delving into vaccine hesitancy and the anti-vax movement, asking where vaccine scepticism comes from, how misinformation spreads, and how much of a problem is this really? Where we do get problems are with particular vaccines. There's been a drop in the uptake in MMR, measles, mumps and rubella, and because measles is so infectious, even these very small drops can have a big impact. I'm Nicola Davis. Welcome to Science Weekly. To get an overview of vaccine scepticism, I spoke to Samantha van der Slot. I'm Samantha van der Slot. I'm a social science researcher at the Oxford Vaccine Group at the University of Oxford. I work on different health and society topics. Um, at the moment, it's mainly about attitudes to vaccination and with the COVID-19 vaccines coming out, um, this is a really uh, big topic for me at the moment. Samantha, we hear a lot about vaccine scepticism or hesitancy, and as something you research, I wondered if you could give us a sense of how big a problem it really is. How much do we actually need to worry about this? What impact does it have on vaccination rates? If you think about the people who are very opposed to vaccines, so you might call them the anti-vaxxers or, or vaccine critics, those people who are really vocal and don't vaccinate, uh, they tend to be a really small proportion of the population. In uh, a lot of countries where surveys are done, this tends to be about 2 to 3%. But we have this bigger group who are more undecided and might be influenced and flip between accepting some vaccines and not others. They might delay vaccines and they have questions and concerns. So that's a vaccine hesitant group. So it can potentially be quite large in the population. Does vaccine hesitancy, I mean, you sort of touched on it there, but does it 
always correlate with what people actually do in practice? I mean, is it the case that people are have concerns about vaccines but, but get it anyway on the basis that it's a, generally a good idea? Or is it that actually that hesitancy translates into not getting vaccinated? So it doesn't always translate directly. And I think you can look at attitudes and see what people are thinking about vaccines. And in France, about one third of the French public are disagreeing with vaccine safety in surveys. Uh, but there's quite a high number of children who are vaccinated in France. That's about 97%. Where we do get problems are with particular vaccines. There's been a drop in the uptake in MMR, measles, mumps and rubella in France. And because measles is so infectious, even these very small drops can have a big impact. And we might see also a catch up in people who are saying they don't trust vaccines. Um, they're worried about safety and that might come along a bit later in response to a controversy, especially. The COVID vaccines will all have been through rigorous safety tests and trials and a very thorough review process. But Samantha, some are still concerned about how quickly we've got to a vaccine for COVID. What do you make of this as a factor in the hesitancy around accepting a COVID-19 vaccine? With the COVID-19 vaccines, this is a really good example because there might be people who've um, always vaccinated, um, haven't had a problem with vaccines that have been around for a long time, but they're worried and have questions about new vaccines and new technologies, which is quite understandable. I suppose with the COVID-19 vaccines, uh, there is a high level of uncertainty and it depends how well this is being communicated about what we do know and what we don't and what the processes have been to approve new vaccines. Another factor which seems pertinent for the COVID-19 vaccine is age. So we know that the risk in COVID-19 increases with age quite startlingly. I mean, you can see that uh, you know, once you get to 70, 80, 90, your risk really does shoot up. I wonder whether vaccine hesitancy is more common in certain age groups than others and how that might impact the effectiveness of a vaccination programme. So I've been involved in a study led by a psychiatry professor at the University of Oxford, Daniel Freeman, and we've been surveying UK adults, about 5,000 of them, trying to find out how vaccine hesitant they would be to a new COVID-19 vaccine. And we don't find uh, very strong correlations between different demographics. So we see slightly higher hesitancy in younger females, people on lower income and so on. But these are only quite small associations. So it does indicate to us that hesitancy, at least to these vaccines, are quite spread across the population. I think also with uh, the COVID-19 vaccines, we are seeing um, a slightly higher acceptance level in the old age groups in other surveys. So there is quite a lot of support for these vaccines within a group that seem to be at high risk. What do you think the most important thing we can do is to foster trust in new vaccines? Because trust seems to be at the centre of this. So people uh, feel that something is safe and that they can trust the vaccine, they can trust the people who are... Um, putting out the vaccine and, and the government who's, who's uh, you know, encouraging vaccination. That, that seems to be really, really important. So what can we do to increase the trust in, in the vaccines and in the vaccination programme? 
What's been shown to work quite well in the past, especially in the UK, is to make sure that we carry on to invest well in immunisation services and make sure that people who do want to vaccinate um, are able to easily, they have the information they need. And also, if they have questions and concerns, they can dis- discuss these with their health providers who have the time and the resources to um, have conversations with them, which isn't always the case, especially if those kind of services are being cut. We tend to trust the government and pharma companies less than we do uh, health providers like doctors and, and nurses. So I think we need to see more of the messaging coming from those people, also community leaders, seeing high profile examples of people being vaccinated also. And, and not just um, the elderly, but the younger generations, which um, we should be seeing as the vaccine does roll out. Um, and I think those Um, depictions of uh, older people being vaccinated and getting their lives back um, have been very powerful um, and we need to see something similar as the vaccine rollout um, continues for younger generations. Alongside potential differences among age groups, researchers have found that vaccine hesitancy is disproportionately high among black, Asian and other minority ethnic groups and those with lower incomes. Bearing in mind that many of these communities will have been some of the hardest hit by the pandemic, I was curious to explore some of the reasons behind this, and whether, for many of these communities, their scepticism might be grounded in past experience. For this, I turned to Kachin Gaty, a historian of medicine at King's College London. The first thing I wanted to know was where, historically, we've seen vaccine hesitancy before. We've seen vaccine hesitancy all the way back to when vaccines first came around. In a sense, it's really understandable when vaccines were first introduced to be somewhat hesitant about what these vaccines might do, something being injected into you. Uh, So from the very beginning, there's vaccine hesitancy. But the kind of hesitancy we talk about now really starts to appear in the 19th century, the late 19th century, as public health begins to sort of play a larger role. So public health is something that the state does for its citizens. So as governments began to provide public health for citizens, not all individuals or groups necessarily felt that the state actually had their best interests at heart. An example of this is the smallpox vaccine, when the English government tried to make it compulsory. Kachin, tell us a bit about that. In the 19th century, when this smallpox vaccine was being offered around, um, it was offered in this very particular governmental context. And that context was of a government that had started to be very interventionist in terms of the public's health. And what had become clear over the course of you know a few decades was that the public health measures that were being offered were targeting very particular groups of people, generally marginalized workers like sex workers. Um, So the smallpox vaccine was made compulsory for the working class. And the working class revolted against this because they understood, first of all, this context that this is another one of these interventionist measures. And yes, smallpox is running rampant through these very crowded, very poor areas of the city. 
But at the same time, the safety record for vaccination was not great because, of course, the standardization of the vaccine had not yet happened and there were still many unknowns. And that the side effects of the vaccine could also be pretty horrible. And so they saw themselves as a targeted group, a group to be brought under control by the public health measures of this very interventionist government. And they pushed back against this, and in many ways, rightly so. The history of the smallpox vaccine, or the kind of very conventional way to tell it, is that therefore smallpox is not eradicated until the 20th century, um, and that this is the fault of people who rejected the vaccine. But in fact, I think we can see the other side of the story, that um, not only are there other issues involved, but also that in the face of an interventionist government of this sort, that this kind of reaction can't be unexpected, and in fact, in many ways, is, is completely reasonable. So looking at some of the historical examples, I mean, you talked about sort of concerns among some about targeting of public health interventions, those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, people of colour or other groups. Was there any legitimate reasons to feel cautious around this kind of health care in these groups? Absolutely. One of the best examples that we have is probably the Tuskegee syphilis study, which ran from 1932 to 1972. And that was a study of untreated syphilis in African-American men. They were told that they were being treated for syphilis, but they weren't actually. The, the whole point of the study was to examine what happens to syphilis, what happens to a body over um, a lifetime, essentially. This study continued on for 40 years and the results were published in all of these reputable medical journals and everybody was really interested. But in the meantime, of course, more and more and more effective uh, treatments for syphilis were developed. So that essentially what was happening is the, uh, in this case, the the public health department, the the American, um, you know, federal government, an arm of the federal government was denying these patients Uh, the treatment that they needed, even as they told them they were getting this treatment. That really sums up one of the really important ways in which people in these sort of marginalized populations, in this case people of color, have legitimate reasons for worrying about what's really in a vaccine or what is the point of this vaccine? Why are they being vaccinated? And you see in the United States now, the legacy of this is that the percentage of of African-Americans who are willing to get the vaccination is is relatively low as compared to other ethnic groups and certainly as compared to white people, the, the middle to upper class enfranchised groups. But of course, there are examples from Africa, from uh, the Middle East that have more to do with the politics of global health and pharmaceutical company testing than they do with distrust of the medical authority more specifically. Well, it's interesting you bring up pharmaceutical companies because one of the key factors that's often cited when it comes to vaccine hesitancy is the supposed malevolent motivations of big pharma. And I just wonder, you know, obviously these are companies, they are they are wanting to make a profit, but they are also making life-saving medications. Why is it that pharmaceutical companies have, have come in for such a bad rep? There are so many reasons for that. And I think it's really, uh, it's sort of justified. I mean, one of the reasons is the kind of the clinical trials that they've done in the global south that 
have really used these uh, citizens, citizens of these various countries as their guinea pigs so that they will test various drugs. And, you know, once it's decided that it's had an effective result, then it's sort of removed from operation there and put into the global north for, for marketing. The, the history of pharmaceutical companies also really points out the fact that, you know, these companies who are making legitimate potentially life-saving, but at least efficacious drugs throughout the late 19th and early 20th century are also the companies that are making these really uh, sort of dangerous or really problematic patent medicines, as they're called, these over-the-counter medicines that don't make anybody actually better, but are very popular because they're so widely available. So they've been malevolent for at least a century. I mean, I think you're right to say, you know, this is profit-driven, but it's not a but they produce life-saving cures. It's it's a and they produce life-saving cures. So these are the cures that really make them a lot of money. So they have a vested interest in producing vaccines and, and different treatments that are going to be effective because that's going to make them money. Um, and so in that sense, we should feel very good about the vaccines we get from pharmaceutical companies because they won't make a profit if, if the vaccine is a failure or if there are multiple scandals or lawsuits associated with it. Kate, you talked about concerns about government and, and perhaps a lack of trust in governments being one of the reasons why people might be hesitant about taking a vaccine uh, or other public health measures. Is that something which is becoming a growing problem or is that something which we're actually is, is becoming less of a problem, perhaps becoming more trusting uh, of, of our governments? What's happened over the 20th century, especially, is the character of our trust has really changed. And a lot of that has to do with the way uh, the, the profile of risk, risk as something that we worry about, something that we control for, has changed dramatically over the 20th century. And probably one of the easiest ways to see that is to think about the Cold War and the new culture of risk that arises in that period. So, of course, the big threat during the Cold War was the potential for nuclear war. And in reaction to that, the way in which governments sort of thought about risk and addressed risk also changed so that their policies became increasingly preemptive and that there became an expectation that every possible outcome was controlled for. And particularly in the context of public health, that's exactly what we've seen since these preemptive strikes to, to keep an infectious disease out of our countries, to stop it at the borders, to find it where it starts and stop it there. And I think that that culture of risk has really changed our relationship with the state in, in really important ways. So rather than you know, as in the late 19th and early 20th century, this notion of citizens reacting to what are perceived as and what often, you know, were uh, legitimately uh, sort of the unfair weaponization of public health against them. By the end of the 20th century, you see this more in terms of a underlying wariness about governments um, and about big institutions. With the growth of health organisations and companies, there are more players in the game when we think about who to trust and why, which has undoubtedly changed the nature of our understanding of public health and our concerns. 
We have plenty of reasons to trust vaccines, not least because it's in governments and pharmaceutical companies' best interests to make vaccinations that not only work, but are also safe. But with so many examples of why people might feel hesitant, I had one last question for Kachin. Can I just ask, I mean, you know, I said in the UK, the, the vaccines have now started to be rolled out. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is going into people's arms now. Uh, how do you feel about it? Would you take the vaccine? Should you be offered it? I would take the vaccine for sure. Yes. There's a really great book uh, called Anti-Vax by Bernice Houseman, And one of the things that she says in it or says about it is that, you know, the more that she's looked into the history of anti-vax and more that she's thought about it, the more she recognizes how and why distrust happens. And the more she herself has sort of said like, okay, these are things we really all collectively need to question, but they are also not things that should stop us from getting vaccinated. And I think that's the view I have as well, that I understand that the public health imperative really requires that I get vaccinated, that we all get vaccinated. But at the same time, I hope that thinking through these issues helps us to ask the questions we need to ask to understand why hesitators hesitate and and why we don't. That was Dr. Kate Gainty, and earlier you heard Dr. Samantha Vanderslot. Thanks to both. If you want to find out more about how a COVID vaccine was developed and approved so quickly, do read the article I recently wrote on this topic. You'll find it on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. In our next episode, we're going to be going even deeper into vaccine scepticism, diving into the murky world of conspiracy theories with The Guardian's technology editor, Alex Hearn. This was the biggest story of many people's lives, without question. And yet there was so little that we actually knew, so little hard information that we had about COVID-19. Join us again on Thursday for that. Until then, stay safe. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.